welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. This is your host, John Hagedorn. Today, a great story from Rudyard Kipling called A Matter of Fact. First, a note for all you listeners. If you've been missing Jack London's stories, it's because we just started a new podcast called 1001 Best of Jack London. You'll find it wherever you get your podcasts. And the purpose there is to house all of our Jack London stories, archived and new, right there. And you'll find some great stories coming in. Just remember, 1001 Best of Jack London. Now for our story, A Matter of Fact, by Rudyard Kipling. And if ye doubt the tale I tell, steer through the South Pacific swell, go where the branching coral hives, unending strife of endless lives, where leagued about the wildered boat, the rainbow jellies fill and float, and lilting where the labor lingers, the starfish trips on all her fingers, where, neath his myriad spines a shock, the sea egg ripples down the rock. An orange wonder, dimly guessed, from darkness where the cuddles rest, Moored o'er the darker deeps that hide The blind white sea-snake and his bride, Who, drowsing, knows the long-lost ships Let down through darkness to their lips. The Palms Once a priest, always a priest. Once a mason, always a mason. But once a journalist, always and forever a journalist. There were three of us, all newspaper men, the only passengers on a little tramp steamer that ran where her owners told her to go. She had once been in the Bilbao iron ore business, had been lent to the Spanish government for service at Manila, and was ending her days in the Cape Town coolie trade, with occasional trips to Madagascar and even as far as England. We found her going to Southampton in ballast, and shipped in her because the fares were nominal. There was Keller, of an American paper, on his way back to the States from palace executions in Madagascar. There was a burly half-Dutchman, called Zoyland, who owned and edited a paper up-country near Johannesburg. And there was myself, who had solemnly put away all journalism, vowing to forget that I had ever known the difference between an imprint and a stereo advertisement. Ten minutes after Keller spoke to me, as the raft mines cleared Cape Town, I had forgotten the aloofness I desired to feign and was in heated discussion on the immorality of expanding telegrams beyond a certain fixed point. Then Zoyland came out of his cabin, and we were all at home instantly, because we were men of the same profession, needing no introduction. We annexed the boat formally, broke open the passenger's bathroom door, on the manila lines the dons do not wash, cleaned out the orange peel and cigar ends at the bottom of the bath, hired a lascar to shave us throughout the voyage, and then asked each other's names. Three ordinary men would have quarreled through sheer boredom before they reached Southampton. We, by virtue of our craft, were anything but ordinary men. A large percentage of the tales of the world, the thirty-nine that cannot be told to ladies, and the one that can, are common property coming of a common stock. We told them all, as a matter of form, with all their local and specific variants which are surprising. Then came, in the intervals of steady card play, more personal histories of adventure and things seen and suffered, panics among white folk, when the blind terror ran from man to man on the Brooklyn Bridge, and the people crushed each other to death they knew not why, fires and faces that opened and shut their mouths horribly at red-hot window frames, wrecks in frost and snow reported from the sleet-sheathed rescue tug at the risk of frostbite, long rides after diamond thieves, 
skirmishes on the veldt and in municipal committees with the Boers, glimpses of lazy tangled Cape politics and the mule rule in the Transvaal, card tales, horse tales, woman tales, by the score and the half hundred, till the first mate, who had seen more than us all put together, but lacked words to clothe his tales with, sat open-mouthed far into the dawn. When the tales were done, we picked up cards till a curious hand or chance remark made one or other of us say, "'That reminds me of a man who, or a business which,' and the anecdotes would continue while the Rathmines kicked her way northward through the warm water. In the morning of one specially warm night, we three were sitting immediately in front of the wheelhouse, where an old Swedish boatswain, whom we called Frithiof the Dane, was at the wheel, pretending that he couldn't hear our stories.' Once or twice, Prithioff spun the spokes curiously, and Keller lifted his head from a long chair to ask, "'What is it? Can't you get any steerage way on her?' "'There is a feel in the water,' said Prithioff, "'that I cannot understand. I think we run down hills or somethings. She steers bad this morning.' "'Nobody seems to know the laws that govern the pulse of the big waters.' Sometimes even a landsman can tell that the solid ocean is a tilt, and that the ship is working itself up for a long, unseen slope. And sometimes the captain says, whether neither full steam nor fair wind justifies the length of a day's run, that the ship is sagging downhill. But how these ups and downs come about has not yet been settled authoritatively. No, it's a following sea, said Frithiof, and fit the following sea. "'You shall not get good steerage way.' "'The sea was as smooth as a duck-pond, "'except for a regular oily swell. "'As I looked over the side "'to see where it might be following us from, "'the sun rose in a perfectly clear sky "'and struck the water with its light so sharply "'that it seemed as though the sea should clang "'like a burnished gong. "'The wake of the screw and the little white streak "'cut by the long line hanging over the stern "'were the only marks on the water "'as far as I could reach.' Keller rolled out of his chair and went to get a pineapple from the ripening stock that was hung inside the after awning. Frithiof, the log line has got tired of swimming. It's coming home, he drawled. What? said Frithiof, his voice jumping several octaves. Coming home, Keller repeated, leaning over the stern. I ran to his side and saw the log line, which till then had been drawn tense over the stern railing, slacken, loop, "'had come up off the port quarter. "'Frithioff called up the speaking tube to the bridge, "'and the bridge answered, "'Yes, nine knots.' "'Then Frithioff spoke again, "'and the answer was, "'What do you want of the skipper?' "'And Frithioff bellowed, "'Call him up!' "'By this time Zoyland, Keller, and myself "'had caught something of Frithioff's excitement, "'for any emotion on shipboard is most contagious. "'The captain ran out of his cabin, "'spoke to Frithioff, looked at the log line, "'jumped on the bridge, "'and in a minute we felt the steamer swing round "'as Frithioff turned her. "'Going back to Cape Town?' said Keller. "'Frithioff did not answer, but tore away the wheel. "'Then he beckoned us three to help, "'and we held the wheel down till the Rathmines answered it, "'and we found ourselves looking into the white of our own wake, "'with the still oily sea tearing past our bows, "'though we were not going more than half steam ahead.' The captain stretched out his arm from the bridge and shouted. A minute later I would have given a great deal to have shouted too, 
for one half of the sea seemed to shoulder itself above the other half and came on in the shape of a hill. There was neither crest, comb, nor curl over to it, nothing but black water with little waves chasing each other about the planks. I saw it stream past and on a level with the raft mine's bow plates before the steamer hove up her bulk to rise, and I argued that this would be the last of all earthly voyages for me. Then we lifted forever and ever and ever, till I heard Keller saying in my ear, The bowels of the deep good lord. And the Rathmoyne stood poised, her screw racing and drumming on the slope of a hollow that stretched downwards for a good half mile. We went down that hollow, nose under for the most part, and the air smelt wet and muddy, like that of an emptied aquarium. There was a second hill to climb. I saw that much. But the water came aboard and earned me aft, till it jammed me against the wheelhouse door. And before I could catch breath or clear my eyes again, we were rolling to and fro in torn water, with the scuppers pouring like eaves in a thunderstorm. There were three waves, said Keller, and the stokeholds flooded. The firemen were on deck waiting, apparently, to be drowned. The engineer came and dragged them below, and the crew, gasping, began to work the clumsy board of trade pump. That showed nothing serious, and when I understood that the raft mines was really on the water and not beneath it, I asked what had happened. The captain says it was a blow-up under the sea, a volcano, said Keller. It hasn't warmed anything, I said. I was feeling bitterly cold, and cold was almost unknown in those waters. I went below to change my clothes, and when I came up, everything was wiped out in clinging white fog. "'Are there going to be any more surprises?' said Keller to the captain. "'I don't know. Be thankful you're alive, gentlemen. That's a tidal wave thrown up by a volcano. Probably the bottom of the sea has been lifted a few feet somewhere or other. I can't quite understand this cold spell. Our sea thermometer says the surface water is 44 degrees, and it should be 68 degrees based on where we are.' "'It's abominable,' said Keller, shivering. "'But hadn't you better tend to the foghorn? "'It seems to me that I heard something.' "'We'll return with our story right after these sponsor messages.' "'And now back to our story.' "'Heard! Good heavens!' said the captain from the bridge. "'I should think you did!' "'He pulled the string of our foghorn, which was a weak one. "'It sputtered and choked.' "'because the stokehold was full of water "'and the fires were half drowned, "'and at last gave out a moan. "'It was answered from the fog "'by one of the most appalling steam sirens "'I've ever heard. "'Keller turned as white as I did, "'for the fog, the cold fog, was upon us, "'and any man may be forgiven "'for fearing a death he cannot see. "'Give her steam here,' said the captain to the engine room. "'Steam for the whistle. "'If we have to, go dead slow.' We bellowed again, and the damp dripped off the awnings onto the deck as we listened for the reply. It seemed to be astern this time, but much nearer than before. "'That's the Pembroke Castle on us,' said Keller, and then viciously, "'Well, thank God, we shall sink her too.' "'It's a side-wheel steamer,' I whispered. "'Can't you hear the paddles?' This time we whistled and roared till the steam gave out, and the answer nearly deafened us. There was a sound of frantic thrashing in the water, apparently about fifty yards away, and something shot past in the whiteness that looked as though it were gray and red, 
That's the Pembroke Castle. Bottom up, said Keller, who, being a journalist, always sought for explanations. That's the colors of a castle liner. We're in for a big thing. The sea is bewitched, said Frithiof from the wheelhouse. There are two steamers. Another siren sounded on her bow, and the little steamer rolled in the wash of something that had passed unseen. We're evidently in the middle of a fleet, said Keller, quietly. If one doesn't run us down, the other will. Whew! What in creation is that? I sniffed, for there was a poisonous rank smell in the cold air, a smell that I'd smelt before. If I was on land, I would say that's an alligator. It smells like musk, I answered. No, not ten thousand alligators could make that smell, said Zoyland. I've smelt them. Bewitched, said Frithiof. The sea, she's turned upside down, and we are walking along the bottom. Again, the wrath mines rolled in the wash of some unseen ship, and a silver-gray wave broke over the bow, leaving on the deck a sheet of sediment, the gray broth that has its place in the fathomless depths of the sea. A sprinkling of the wave fell on my face, and it was so cold that it stung like boiling water stings. The dead and most untouched deep water of the sea had been heaved to the top by the undersea volcano, the chill still water that kills all life and smells of desolation and emptiness. We did not need either the blinding fog or that indescribable smell of musk to make us unhappy. We were shivering with cold and wretchedness where we stood. The hot air on the cold water makes this fog, said the captain. It ought to clear in a little time. "'Well, just whistle, and let's get out of it,' said Keller. "'The captain whistled again, and far and far astern the invisible twin steamers answered us. "'Their blasting shriek grew louder, till at last it seemed to tear out of the fog just above our quarter. "'And I cowered, while the raft mines plunged bows under and a double swell to cross. "'No more,' said Frithiof. "'It's not good any more. Let us get away. Let us get away, in the name of God.' Now, if a torpedo boat with a city of Paris siren went bad and broke her moorings and hired a friend to help her, it's just conceivable that we might be carried as we are now. Otherwise, this thing is... The last words died on Keller's lips. His eyes began to start from his head, and his jaw fell, some six or seven feet above the port bulwarks. Framed in fog, and as utterly unsupported as the full moon, hung a face. It was not human. And it certainly was not animal, for it did not belong to this earth as known to man. The mouth was open, revealing a ridiculously tiny tongue, as absurd as the tongue of an elephant. There were tense wrinkles of white skin at the angles of the drawn lips. White feelers like those of a barbell sprung from the lower jaw, and there was no sign of teeth within the mouth. But the horror of the face lay in the eyes, for those were sightless, white, in sockets as white as scraped bone and blind. Yet for all this the face, wrinkled as the mask of a lion is drawn in Assyrian sculpture, was alive with rage and terror. One long white feeler touched our bulwarks. Then the face disappeared with the swiftness of a blind worm popping into its burrow. And the next thing that I remember is my own voice in my own ears, saying gravely to the mainmast, but the air bladder ought to have been forced out of its mouth, you know. 
Keeler came up to me, ashy white. He put his hand into his pocket, took a cigar, bit it, dropped it, thrust his shaking thumb into his mouth, and mumbled. The giant gooseberry and the raining frogs. Give me a light. Give me a light, man. A little bit of blood dropped from his thumb joint. I respected the motive, though the manifestation was absurd. Stop. You'll bite your thumb off, I said. And Keller laughed brokenly as he picked up his cigar. Only Zoyland, leaning over the port bulwarks, seemed self-possessed. He declared later that he was very sick. We've seen it, he said, turning round. That is it. What? said Keller, chewing the unlighted cigar. As he spoke, the fog was blown into shreds, and we saw the sea, gray with mud, rolling on every side of us and empty of all life. Then in one spot it bubbled and became like the pot of ointment that the Bible speaks of. From that wide-ringed trouble, the thing came up, a gray and red thing with a neck, a thing that bellowed and writhed in pain. Frithiof drew in his breath and held it to the red letters of the ship's name, woven across his jersey, straggled and opened out as though they'd been tight, badly set. Then he said, with a little cluck in his throat, Ach, me, it's blind. Kurhila, that thing is blind. And a murmur of pity went to us all, for we could see that the thing on the water was blind and in pain. Something had gashed and cut the great sides cruelly, and blood was spurting out. The great ooze of the undermost sea lay in the monstrous wrinkles of the back and poured away in sluices. The blind white head flung back and battered the wounds, and the body in its torment rose clear of the red and gray waves till we saw a pair of quivering shoulders streaked with weed and rough with shells, but as white in the clear spaces as the hairless, maneless, blind, toothless head. Afterwards came a dot on the horizon and the sound of a shrill scream, and it was as though a shuttle shot all across the sea in one breath, and a second head and neck tore through the levels, driving a whispering wall of water to right and left. The two things met, the one untouched, and the other in its death row, male and female, we said, the female coming to the male. She circled round him, bellowing, and laid her neck across the curve of his great turtle back, and he disappeared underwater for an instant, but flung up again, grunting in agony while the blood ran. Once the entire head and neck shot clear of the water and stiffened, and I heard Keller saying, as though he was watching a street accident, Give him air, for God's sakes, give him air. Then the death struggle began, with crampings and twistings and jerkings of the white bulk to and fro, till our little steamer rolled again, and each gray wave coated her place with gray slime. The sun was clear, there was no wind, and we watched, the whole crew, stokers and all, in wonder and pity, but chiefly pity. The thing was so helpless, and save for his mate, so alone. No human eye should have beheld it. It was monstrous and indecent to exhibit him there at trade borders between atlas degrees of latitude. He had been spewed up, mangled and dying, from his rest on the sea floor, where he might have lived till judgment day. And we saw the tides of his life go from him as an angry tide goes out across the rocks in the teeth of a landward gale. His mate lay rocking on the water a little distance off, bellowing continually, and the smell of musk came down upon the ship making us cough. 
At last, the battle for life ended in a batter of colored seas. We saw the writhing neck fall like a flail. The carcass turned sideways, showing the glint of a white belly and the inside of a gigantic hind leg or flipper. Then all sank, and the sea boiled over it, while the mate swam round and round, darting her head in every direction. Though we might have feared that she would attack the steamer, no power on earth could have drawn any one of us from our places that hour. We watched, holding our breaths. The mate paused in her search. We could hear the wash beating along her sides, reared her neck as high as she could reach, blind and lonely in all that loneliness of the sea, and sent one desperate bellow booming across the swells as an oyster shell skips across a pond. Then she made off to the westward, the sun shining on the white head and the wake behind it, till there was nothing left to see but a little pinpoint of silver on the horizon. We stood on our course again, and the raft mines coated with the sea sediment from bow to stern looked like a ship made gray with terror. We must pool our notes, was the first coherent remark from Keller. We're three trained journalists. We hold absolutely the biggest scoop on record. Start fair. I objected to this. Nothing is gained by collaboration in journalism when all deal with the same facts. So we went to work each according to his own lights. Keller triple-headed his account, talked about our gallant captain, and wound up with an allusion to American Enterprise in that it was a citizen of Dayton, Ohio, that had seen the sea serpent. This sort of thing would have discredited the creation, much more a mere sea tale. But as a specimen of the picture-writing of half-civilized people, it was very interesting. Zoylan took a heavy column and a half, giving approximate lengths and breadths, and the whole list of the crew whom he had sworn on oath to testify to his facts. There was nothing fantastic or flamboyant in Zoyland. I wrote three-quarters of a leaded bourgeois column, roughly speaking, and refrained from putting any journalese into it for reasons that had begun to appear to me. Keller was insolent with joy. He was going to cable from Southampton to the New York world, mail his account to America on the same day, paralyze London with his three columns of loosely knitted headlines, and generally efface the earth. "'You'll see how I work a big scoop when I get it,' he said. "'Is this your first visit to England?' I asked. "'Yes,' said he. "'You don't seem to appreciate the beauty of our scoop. "'It's pyramidal. "'The death of the sea serpent? "'Good heavens alive, man! "'It's the biggest thing ever vouchsafed to a paper.' "'Curious to think that it will never appear in any paper, isn't it?' I said. Zoyland was near me, and he nodded quickly. "'What do you mean?' said Keller. "'If you're enough of a Britisher to throw this thing away, I shan't. I thought you were a newspaper man.' "'I am. That's why I know. Don't be an ass, Keller. Remember, I'm seven hundred years your senior, and what your grandchildren may learn five hundred years hence.' I learned from my grandfathers about 500 years ago. You won't do it, because you can't. This conversation was held in open sea, where everything seems possible, some hundred miles from Southampton. We passed the needle's light at dawn, and the lifting day showed the stucco villas on the green and the awful orderliness of England. Line upon line, wall upon wall, solid stone dock and monolithic pier. We waited an hour in the custom shed, and there was ample time for the effect to soak in. 
Now, Keller, you face the music. The Havel goes out today. Mailed by her, and I'll take you to the telegraph office, I said. I heard Keller gasp as the influence of the land closed about him, cowing him as they say Newmarket Heath cows a young horse unused to open courses. I want to retouch my stuff. Suppose we wait till we get to London, he said. Zoyland, by the way, had torn up his account and thrown it overboard that morning early. His reasons were my reasons. In the train, Keller began to revise his copy, and every time that he looked at the trim little fields, the red villas, and the embankments of the line, the blue pencil plunged remorselessly through the slips. He appeared to have dredged the dictionary for adjectives. I could think of none that he hadn't used. Yet he was a perfectly sound poker player, "'and never showed more cards than were sufficient to take the pool. "'Aren't you going to leave him a single bellow?' "'I asked sympathetically. "'Remember, everything goes in the States, "'from a trouser button to a double eagle.' "'Ah, it's just the curse of it,' said Keller below his breath. "'We've played him for suckers so often "'that when it comes to the golden truth, "'I'd like to try this on a London paper. "'You have first call there, though. "'Not in the least. "'I'm not touching the thing in our papers. "'I shall be happy to leave them all to you. "'But surely you'll cable at home?' "'No. "'Not if I can make the scoop here "'and see the Britishers sit up. "'You won't do it with three columns of slushy headline, "'believe me. "'They don't sit up as quickly as some people.' "'Yeah, I'm beginning to think that, too. "'Does nothing make any difference in this country?' "'He said, looking out of the window. "'How old is that farmhouse?' "'Ah, it's pretty new. "'It can't be more than two hundred years at the most.' "'Huh. "'Fields, too?' "'That hedge there must have been clipped for about eighty years.' "'Labor cheap, eh?' "'Pretty much. "'Well, I suppose you'd like to try the times, wouldn't you?' "'No,' said Keller, looking at Winchester Cathedral. "'Might as well try to electrify a haystack. "'And you'd think that the world paper would take three columns and ask for more.' "'With illustrations, too. It's sickening.' "'But the Times might,' I began. "'Keller flung his paper across the carriage, "'and it opened in its austere majesty of solid type, "'opened with the crackle of an encyclopedia. "'Might! You might work your way through the bow plates of a cruiser. "'Look at that first page.' "'It strikes you that way, does it?' I said. "'Then I'd recommend you try a light and frivolous journal.' "'Why, a thing like this of mine? Of ours? This is sacred history.' I showed him a paper which I conceived would be after his own heart, in that it was modeled on American lines. "'That's homey,' he said. "'But it's not the real thing. "'Now I should like one of these fat old Times columns. "'Probably there'd be a bishop in the office, though.' When we reached London, Keller disappeared in the direction of the Strand. What his experiences may have been, I cannot tell— "'but it seems that he invaded the office of an evening paper at 11.45 a.m. "'I told him English editors were most idle at that hour, "'and mentioned my name as that of a witness to the truth of his story. "'I was nearly fired out,' he said furiously at lunch. "'As soon as I mentioned you, the old man said that I was to tell you "'that they didn't want any more of your practical jokes, "'and that you knew the hours to call if you had anything to sell.' "'and that they'd see you condemned "'before they helped to pop one of your infernal yarns in advance. "'Say, what record do you hold for truth in this country, anyway?' 
"'Actually, I hold a beauty. "'You ran up against it, that's all. "'Why don't you leave the English papers alone "'and cable to New York? "'Everything goes over there.' "'Can't you see that's just why?' he repeated. "'Yeah, I saw it a long time ago. "'So you don't intend to cable?' "'Yes, I do,' he answered, "'in the over-emphatic voice "'of one who does not know his own mind.' That afternoon I walked him abroad and about, over the streets that run between the pavements like channels of grooved and tongued lava, over the bridges that are made of enduring stone, through subways floored and sided with yard-thick concrete, between houses that are never rebuilt, and by river steps hewn to the eye from the living rock. A black fog chased us into Westminster Abbey, and, standing there in the darkness, I could hear the wings of the dead centuries circling round the head of Litchfield A. Keller, journalist of Dayton, Ohio, USA, whose mission it was to make the Britishers sit up. He stumbled gasping into the thick gloom, and the roar of the traffic came to his bewildered ears. "'Let's go to the telegraph office and cable,' I said. "'Can't you hear the New York world crying for news of the great sea serpent, blind, white, and smelling of musk?' "'stricken to death by an undersea volcano, "'and assisted by his loving wife to die in mid-ocean, "'as visualized by an American citizen, "'the breezy, newsy, brainy newspaper man of Dayton, Ohio. "'Rob for the Buckeye State! "'Step lively! "'Both gates! "'Boom! "'Ah!' "'Keller was a Princeton man, "'and he seemed to need encouragement. "'You've got me on your own ground,' said he. "'tugging at his overcoat pocket. "'He pulled out his copy with the cable forms, "'for he had written out his telegram "'and put them all into my hand, groaning. "'I pass. "'If I hadn't come to your cursed country, "'if I'd have sent it off to Southampton, "'if I ever get you west of the Alleghenies, "'if... "'Never mind, Keller. "'It isn't your fault. "'It's the fault of your country. "'If you had been 700 years older, "'you'd have done what I'm going to do.' "'What are you going to do?' "'Tell it as a lie.' "'Fiction?' "'This with the full-blooded disgust of a journalist "'for the illegitimate branch of the profession. "'You can call it that if you like. "'I shall call it a lie.' "'And a lie it has become, "'for truth is a naked lady, "'and if by accident she's drawn up from the bottom of the sea, "'it behooves a gentleman "'either to give her a print petticoat "'or to turn his face to the wall,' "'and vowed that he did not see a thing. "'Thanks for joining us for A Matter of Fact by Rudyard Kipling. "'We always appreciate reviews, "'and if you have a moment, "'please do send us a review for 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. "'Also remember, you Jack London fans, "'to check out 1001 Best of Jack London "'at Apple Podcast, at Spotify, "'or at any podcast host that you're currently using. "'That's 1001 Best of Jack London.' Thank you. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn. This is 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. We bring new episodes every Wednesday and Sunday night at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. Until our next story, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.